Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the podcast for people who love British military history and appreciate good stories. My name is Christian Parkinson and today we're taking a quick break from the Indian Mutiny to look at the history of the Zulu kings from Shaka to Misuzulu. He's the current ruler of the Zulu people. Before we crack on with today's interview, I just want to remind you that if you sign up for my newsletter over at redcoathistory.com newsletter, you'll also receive a free PDF ebook about the Battle of Isandlwana. It's a cracking read, even if I do say so myself. You can also support the show by sharing this episode with friends and family, or if you're feeling very generous, buying me a beer over at ko-fi.com slash redcoathistory. That's ko-fi.com slash redcoathistory. All the money raised there goes towards the hosting of this podcast and the purchase of new books for more research. A special thanks to today's guest. He's a regular on the show and someone I now consider a friend, Professor John Levand. His book, The Eight Zulu Kings, can be purchased from all the usual places and is well worth checking out. I started our chat by asking John to tell us a little bit about his own background. I've been a historian, really, of the Zulu people for the last, oh, since the 1970s, in fact, and I've carried on doing it into my old age, um, as there's always more to find, more to, more to discover, more to reinterpret, so I keep going, but the Anglo-Zulu War has been my main speciality, though the Zulu monarchy is something I've also been pursuing in great detail over the years. Brilliant. And today we're talking mainly about the Zulu royal family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a new series about Shaka that's yeah. running in South Africa yeah. and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a potted history? How did this current dynasty come about? Who was mm-hmm. Shaka and how did he, how did he come to power? This new shared series, um, Shaka Elambi, is pretty good, actually. It, it gives the real idea of how it happened. and. Shaka was descended of one of the minor dynasties, minor chieftains in the region. And this is a time of competing power play between major paramountcies, the Ndwandwe, the Ntetwa and others. And in the process, um, the Zulu dynasty, if you like, came out on top. The others were eventually defeated or destroyed each other. And then it was a question of consolidating Zulu rule over this whole region between the Pongola River to the north and the and south of the Tugela, the, 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 other, the other way. But it's a question in the process of consolidation. Um, some chieftains didn't want to be ruled, were on the move and, and, and basically upsticked because that's the whole nature of Zulu chieftains. It's control of people and cattle rather than a, a specific territory so that you are growing in power when you incorporate people under your rule and if you don't want to be under somebody's rule, you literally move off with your cattle and find somewhere else to live. And what are the main sources we have about Shaka and about uh-huh. you know, his, his rise to power? Yeah. Is, is there much for you to work from? There's not really. They're, they're, they're contemporaries, um, Port Natal traders, um, Finn and Isaacs and others, um, John Ross, the young boy who was shipwrecked there. Um, they all have something to say. Um, we have the Zulu testimony which collected by James Stewart at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, which perhaps is the best Zulu sources we have of um, people who were perhaps children at that time or his parents, um, you know, were sort of first generation during that period because the Zulu monarchy as such was very short. I mean, if you've got Shaka basically coming to power in 1816, by 1879, the kingdom was over. So literally then one generation, if you're long lived, 
you saw the beginning and you saw the end of the kingdom. And can you sum up for us, and I know this is difficult because, you know, these are complicated, mm. it's a complicated man mm. with a rich history. Mm. What, what do we know about Shaka's personality? Mm. What, what, have we, what have we learned about him? Yeah, well, it depends whose side you're on. If you look at the James Stewart archive, if you're part of the, if you like, ruling Zulu chiefdom and the elite, you think he's the greatest thing since whatever, and, and still today is a founder of the nation and absolutely beloved by Zulu people. But if you're at the wrong end of it, if you are those people who were defeated or moved out or incorporated against their will, um, you get a lot of very adverse testimony about, about Shaka. So you either love him or hate him. Um, that's really how, how it actually goes. And what he actually looked like, we don't really know, long or short, tall or thin, dark or light, the evidence is all, is all different. Um, whether he had a protruding forehead, whether he had buck teeth, whether he lisped, um, all of these things are, you know, really up, up in the air. We don't really know. So, he's, so where we have images for Dingana or Mpande or the other Zulu kings, we don't have an authentic one for, for Shaga at all. So we just have the, if you like, the heroic images which you'll see in Shaga Lembe or you'll see in Shaga Zulu or all these films, you know, huge muscles and looking very handsome, but the real guy, who really knows. We just don't know. We don't know. <laughs> and how did he and then I guess future kings sort of exercise their power? Because I don't think it was as straightforward as people think, is it? No, it's, you know, it's all about the Amabuto, the circumcision age groups, um, which every chief had his own one young men who served the chief and young women who were also in age groups which ma who married the, the, the male Amabuto. But what Shaka did, he got rid of the intermediate layer of chiefs, rather like, if you like, a medieval king getting rid of the nobility and all the feudatories owned, owed their allegiance directly to him and not through an intermediary chief. So, so that's how the Zulu kings managed it. The, the man power and the woman power of the nation through the Amabuto system served the king and the king primarily. They were his soldiers, his workmen, his policemen. Um, that's how he did it and that, that, that's how he exercised power. And that's why when the British were so determined in 1879 to destroy the military system because they did understand that this is how the king actually harnessed all the work potential of, of all his subjects. And am I right in thinking as well that just because the king wanted to do something didn't make it so? The chiefs, you know, could disagree with yeah. him. There was these power plays, different factions. Oh, absolutely. And there it depends on the personality of the king. But the king always ruled in council. Um, you'd have his small council and his larger council and certain bigger issues would then be put to the whole nation, so to speak, in a huge endeavor, huge meeting. But in reality, if a king was really powerful, Nobody's going to argue with him. If Shaka said, I want it this way, or Dingan said, said, I want it that way, there's going to be no argument about this. Um, you know, and they did have the power of life and death, which is the hugely important thing. So every now and again, if you're a Shaka or Dingan especially, if a chief was too powerful, you'd destroy him. He and his people and confiscate all his cattle just to show who was boss and don't argue with me, I am really the guy. Um, you know, um, it is perhaps more complex, and this moves into another topic, when you actually decide who's going to be king, because there the, 
there were assemblies who would agree who the next, next king was going to be, and there there'd be power play, there'd be various contenders, and there, not the king himself, but the, the power makers would actually decide who the next king was going to be and, and take it from there. Well, that leads very nicely into the sort of uh, succession mm. debate, because yeah. things weren't always straightforward and still aren't, are still they? Still I mean, aren't, no. Uh, no. I think I'm right in saying Shaka was killed by his own half-brothers. Right, that's right. And, and maybe you could give us a sense of how, how difficult has that succession yeah. been over the yeah. generations? Technically, the way um, succession works in a traditional Zulu, chiefly homestead, is that the chief son of the chief wife, who's not necessarily your first, second, might be third or fourth wife, doesn't matter, the one who is the chief wife. Is this what they call the paramount wife or the something? The paramount wife, yeah. yeah. She, she would be the one um, whose son would be the technically the heir. But it didn't necessarily work like that in practice. Um, Shaga killed his brother Sigurjana. Um, H.Y.O. in the Civil War of 1856 killed his brother. He killed his brother in, 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 the, in, Biazi, Biazi, in yeah. Biazi, in that particular one. Um, Dingan, of course, killed Shaga when he took the throne. Um, Mpande didn't actually kill, kill Dingani, but he overthrew him in a civil war. Um, but then when you get to the successors, in fact, um, when you get someone like King Solomon, Dinazulu's son, I mean, there's a question of other brothers who were potential, potentially going to be in line. Um, the same was with Cyprian who followed. Again, there were other brothers who could be. Um, and when you come to the present king, um, Mrs. Zulu, um, there it is the descendants of his father's chief, no, chief wife, his first wife, in fact, who was married in a civil ceremony, as opposed to his Swazi princess who was married in a traditional ceremony. And Mrs. Zulu is descended from the Swazi princess. And Buta, Chief Butale, Prince Butalezi was very involved in making sure he got it. But the descendants of the first wife from the civil ceremony, they think he should be king. And this has gone on and on. It's been questionable of the Supreme Court. It's gone. And it still is actually continuing. And now, in fact, Mr. Zulu, who has been courted by the ANC, is rather spitting, so to speak, on Butalezi and trying to break away from it. So, so all of this has always been very complicated. It's been power play and it's been really who sort of makes it, who gathers the most support, they win. And the question of the chief son or the chief wife, maybe, maybe not, you know. Okay. So obviously we're here for the Anglo-Zulu War exhibition, yeah. the Clash of Empires. King Hitswayo was the king at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was taken prisoner at the end of the war. Yeah. What, what, how did that affect the Zulu royal family? What, what happened because of the Anglo-Zulu yeah. War? Yeah, when, when, when they, one of the objectives in the Anglo-Zulu War of the British was finally to destroy the power of the monarchy. So the king is taken off to Cape Town um, and the royal family loses all authority. When the kingdom's broken up into 13 sections, not one of the royal family is appointed one of the 13 chiefs. So this, you're breaking the power of the royal family. Then in 1882-83, after a lot of politicking in England and elsewhere, H.Y. has returned to part of his kingdom. The problem for him, though, of course, some of these major chiefs, like Hamu or Zubebu, are in power. They don't want him back. And this Hamu, lead, of course, had gone over to the British. The British during the war. And, and when I say, yeah, he, yeah, so, he, so, he, so he's certainly there maintaining his position. And Zubebu actually 
periphery of the royal house as well, up in the north, he's also maintaining his position. So when the king comes back, civil war breaks out, they defeat him, the king flees to the southern third of Zululand, the reserved territory which the British are controlling, and there he dies. And there his son Dinazulu is left. And he reasserts his power in the civil war by making a pact with the Boers of the Transvaal, who aid him in the civil war, which he wins, defeats Abebu, but then gives away a third of his kingdom to the Boers of the New Republic as a reward for it. So then you have a very weak Dinazulu left, and then the British in 1887, mainly because they're fearing German interference in St. Lucia Bay and all the rest of it, decide they'll take over the Rump of Zululand as a colony in 1887. So the Zulu king, um, Dinazulu, becomes, well, yet another chief in British Zululand and rebels in 1888 and is defeated and is exiled to St. Helena. And, you know, that is the situation of the monarchy when you come to the late colonial period, the Union of South Africa and the early apartheid era. The king is just another chief, no special authority of the royal house. Um, it doesn't really exist as far as the, if you like, white authorities are concerned. And fast forwarding then to sort of post-World War II and yeah. then apartheid. Yeah. How was the royal family treated during that time? Did it get stronger? Did it get weaker? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, it's really during the period of apartheid when you're looking towards self-governing territories and all the rest of it, when you're looking to, in many ways, um, appease African opinion to set up these independent states. So there is a movement to recognize the Zulu king as a paramount chief. Um, that's great, paramount chief with no real power at all, of course. Um, and when you get to somebody like, like King Cyprian, I mean, you have the, the real problem that you're dealing with the apartheid authorities who are giving you a certain amount of authority. They're trying to set up the KwaZulu homeland and all the rest of it. On the other hand, you've got the new um, independence movements, um, the ANC in exile, the UDF at home, who are obviously totally against this kind of collaboration. So you have the Zulu king very gingerly trying to navigate a path between liberation movements and the apartheid government, giving the monarchy some degree of you know, of a new life. And in fact, what really makes all the difference, not much known, in 1989, there was a deputation from Contralisa, which is this group of traditional chiefs who set up a kind of organization. And they went off to the ANC in exile in Lusaka in Angola. And they dealt with the ANC, who being obviously a Marxist movement, had no truck with kings and all the rest of it, but they made a deal because they realized traditional chiefs had such power over people, especially in the rural areas, as they're called in South Africa. So they made a deal and said, okay, we'll accept the idea of traditional rulers. So that is when you get to 1994 and the negotiations for the new democratic South Africa. The idea of kings and traditional rulers and traditional chiefs are actually written into the negotiations, despite everything you might think. So the deals are made and gets written into the new constitution. And today there have been various changes over the years, but today there are eight traditional kings in South Africa and a whole swathe of lesser chiefs and a house of traditional rulers and all the rest of it. So all of that coexists with really an avowedly sort of Marxist 
um, A and C. So it's, it's a rather odd situation, but, but that, that's how it works. Yeah. And these kings don't have any real power. I mean, now you can call them kings, not paramount chiefs or anything else, but their power is really um, as figureheads. Um, king, the late king's Latini, that's a problem. He's always trying to aggregate more power so that he would actually exercise some, some control. But he is a king who rules but does not govern and keeps on being reminded and slapped down, but still enormous influence in the country and a voice from for millions of Zulu people, even though constitutionally he has no real powers except, well, as a constitutional monarch, you know. So we've mentioned the most recent king, uh, Mr. Zulu. Yeah. Where, where do you see the future of the monarchy going from here? What do we, is the monarchy going to go strong for generations further? What, what would yeah. be your assessment? I, I think it's, it is carrying on. Um, it will. Look, there are problems, especially in KwaZulu, over the Ngonyama Trust, which was set up in 1994, which made the king the trustee for what had previously been um, state-owned um, land where Africans had lived. And the ANC really feels that individual Zulus should have, you know, their own land rights and their own property and all the rest of it. For the king, this is the real source of power and authority, and for the chiefs as well. So there is conflict over this. Um, but at the moment, it sort of died down. At the moment, the ANC would rather operate with the traditional rulers. Okay, guys, a big thanks to John. He really is a gent and a lovely man. I'll be back soon with another episode about the Indian mutiny. Take care, keep in touch, and we will march again soon.